Jesus, we thank you for the revelation that was given on this day, Epiphany. We thank you for the revelation within your word. And we pray, Lord, that your word would be preached today. And therefore, any of my words that are not yours, may they fall to the ground and blow away. But may your words remain. And may in us it bear much fruit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. This morning, I, I want to talk with you about what is very likely the most important thing about you. What might that be? I'm not talking about your gender. I'm not talking about your ethnic background. I'm not talking about your nationality. I'm not talking about your job or your sense of purpose. I'm not talking about your IQ or your credit score or even your Myers-Briggs or Enneagram test results. I'm not even talking about your family or even your own life. The most important thing about us is something that we might not even realize about ourselves. It's something that many of us might have a hard time even defining. And yet it's something that we were created to be and to do every single waking moment of our lives. The most important thing about us is something that ties in very well to this moment that we're having right now. And even more so, it ties in to this special feast day, which we are celebrating today. Today, of course, is Epiphany Sunday. Now, some of you who are sitting here have, have sat through dozens of Epiphany Sundays before, and you've just got this down. For others of you, this is your very first Epiphany Sunday, and you're eager to know what it's all about. What does epiphany mean, and what does it have to do with the most important thing about us, which I haven't shared with you yet? Well, epiphany, it ends the 12 days of Christmas, and therefore it, it always comes on January 6th. Now, we celebrate it on the Sunday that follows the 6th, and sometimes the 6th is a Sunday. And what Epiphany does is mark the event that is described within the gospel narrative which we read this morning from Matthew chapter 2, in which three wise men, or magi, from the east come all the way to Judea in order to worship a newborn king of the Jews. In this event, it may seem to us like just a small detail within the gospel narrative, and yet it couldn't be further from the truth. It is an extremely significant moment because of what it demonstrates theologically. And so significant is it that Epiphany is actually one of seven major feast days celebrated by Anglicans around the world. There are a few reasons why Epiphany is so important for us. Two main ones. First of all, it is the celebration of Jesus Christ as the light of the world. The themes of light breaking into the darkness are just present in, on this day of Epiphany and in the, the season that follows, often called Epiphany Tide. This is what we heard from the prophet Isaiah in the reading this morning from chapter 60. We sang it as well. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And this leads to the second reason that Epiphany is so significant, and that is the proclamation that Jesus as the light of the world is the savior of the whole human race, both Jew and Gentile. And that's actually a big deal. 
It was a big deal to the Jews who heard Jesus preach in his day. Tell me, outside of Mary and Joseph, outside of the, the shepherds who came to the manger, who were the first people to come and acknowledge who Jesus truly was? Three Gentiles. Three Gentile kings from the east. And what we heard in verse 3 of that reading from Isaiah 60 was this. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And this is what happened. Isaiah 60 is prophetic. It speaks not just to Jesus, but the way in which Jesus would draw all people to himself. And thus this epiphany moment, it speaks to the truth that God's heart has always been, always God didn't change his mind. It's always been for all people and not just a tiny group of his favorites. The word epiphany, it comes from the Greek word epiphania, which means appearance. And it's a biblical word. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, we actually see this word used to refer to Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing epiphany of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in the past couple of years that I've been here at Living Faith, I've preached more specifically on these themes of light and of salvation to all people. But this morning, what I'd like to do is to show how these three wise men teach us something about the very most important thing about us. And that thing is what we worship. What we worship. The very core of our identity as human beings is that of worshipers. It's not just the religious. It's everyone. We all worship something someone, all the time. We can't not worship. It's in our nature. God tied it to our very being, and so if we're not worshiping him, we will worship something else. And what I believe is that this epiphany narrative of the wise men gives us a beautiful, just a wonderful illustration of what worship is and what it looks like. And actually, what I want to do in the next couple of weeks is to focus on this theme of worship, and I'll expand on this topic in a number of different ways as the, as the weeks go by. But today, what I want to do is to try and get to the heart of, the essence of what worship is. And so to begin, I want to ask this question. Why did these three wise men come to Judea? Why did they come? Now, some might say they came because they saw the star. And that would be how they came but not why they came. You see, they weren't just following a star to follow a star. That would be crazy. You know anybody who's done that? Instead, these wise men, they had reason to believe that this star was going to lead them to a particular place. And in that particular place, there would be a particular person. And when they got there and they saw that particular person, they had prepared themselves to do one thing. What did they say to Herod? In verse 2 of Matthew 2, where is he 
who has been born king of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. To worship him. The reason they came was worship. Now somehow, I don't know how, God had revealed to these three Gentile kings that a new king was born in Israel. And following the star that appeared, these men traveled hundreds, if not thousands, of miles to find this new king so they could worship him. And the gospel tells us that's exactly what happened when they got there. Listen to what Matthew 2, verses 9 to 11 say. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Now, we don't, we don't know who these three guys are specifically. What we do know is that they were at least very important in society, the society they came from. They were well-educated, at least very familiar with astronomy and science. They were wealthy enough to travel long distances and to afford expensive gifts. And they probably came from a royal line themselves. That's why we call them kings sometimes. We know that because they came to do this thing of honoring another king who came in Judea. But this is actually really unusual. It's really unusual. I mean, isn't it just a bit odd to you that these three important, educated, wealthy, and royal men would come and worship an unimportant, uneducated, poor, and peasant baby? This is odd. It doesn't really make all that much sense. They saw the star, they entered the house, and what must they have thought when they saw the baby before them? What would it have been like if you were Mary or Joseph and see these three grown men bow down, prostrate themselves before your infant son? That would have been a marvelous thing, a mysterious thing to behold. And I want to suggest this morning that it's also quite instructive for us. What I want to suggest today is that these three wise men give us a beautiful picture of what worship is. And I want to explain what I mean in just a moment, but before we can go there, I would be remiss if we didn't first address this even more foundational question, which is this, who is worthy of worship? Before we can answer the question, what is worship, we have to know who should get it. So who is worthy of worship? There is a God who existed eternally, long before space and time ever came into being. There is a God who, out of the power of his voice, spoke billions of galaxies into existence. There is a God who, out of the fullness of his being, brought a tapestry of living things into the empty landscape of this planet. There is a God who, out of the uncontainable love within himself, created human beings to know him and to be known by him. 
The Bible often talks about this God as holy. And what this means is that God is utterly unique in his being. And he's perfect in all of his ways. Scripture also speaks about the glory of God. Which is to say that God is the most supremely important thing in all of existence. And everything else that exists actually points to his preeminence. These two words, holy and glory, they come together in an ancient hymn which we know called the Sanctus. We'll sing it together when we come to Holy Communion. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Do you know what that means? It means there is no one like our God. No one. Period. And thus there is no one worthy of worship except our God. No one. Period. And so to understand what worship looks like, we must first understand that God alone is worthy to receive it. Because he alone is holy and full of glory. Which brings us back to these magi. These three men who come before a baby boy in Judea in order to worship. And what they do, what they do when they see this child illustrates for us in four simple ways what the essence of worship is. Here's the first. Worship is the response to God's revelation. Worship is the response to God's revelation. Since the beginning, God has not been silent. God is not, as the deists say, a clockmaker who winds up the clock and then disappears. No. God has been revealing his nature, his character, and his acts of love to us as human beings since the beginning. And he's done that in several ways. First of all, he's, he's knit his goodness and his power into the world around us, into creation itself. And thus creation speaks to humanity about the glory of God, as the psalmist says in Psalm 19. We often call this common revelation. It's something that everyone should be able to recognize. And yet God has also revealed himself through his word, and chiefly through his son, the living word, Jesus Christ, who makes God's more specific character and love known to us. And this is called special revelation. And the sad truth is that many human beings have either never heard it or been able to believe the truth of it. But the simple fact about revelation and about worship is this. If God does not reveal himself to us, we can't worship. We wouldn't even know where to direct our worship. We wouldn't know what to do or what to say. Deists don't worship, but we worship because God speaks. We witness who God is. We witness what God says and what God does. And when we do that, there's always one correct response. It's worship. It's worship. Consider Jacob when God gave him the glorious vision of the ladder at Bethel, he worshiped. Consider Job 
when God finally showed up out of the whirlwind to answer his complaints. Consider Moses when he witnessed the I am in the burning bush or on Mount Sinai. Consider Isaiah when he saw a vision of God's glory in the temple. Consider Peter, James, and John when they saw the glory of Jesus Christ on the mountain of transfiguration. All of these, when they saw God's holiness and God's glory, they worshiped. Now, interestingly, the Bible, it doesn't define what worship is for us. You can't find a verse that says, worship is this. Instead, what the Bible does is give us a bunch of descriptions of what people have done and what people should do when they encounter the work in the words of God in the world. God revealed his glory to these three magi from the east, and when God spoke to them, and when they saw the star, and when they finally entered the house and saw God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, what did they do? They worshipped. Which leads us to the second point. Worship is adoration. Worship is adoration. It's not a word we often use in our daily language, and yet we often do it. Adoration is to understand inwardly and to acknowledge outwardly that God is the Lord and therefore we are his humble creatures. That God is there and we are here. Adoration, it goes hand in hand with what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Often misunderstood, but it's the kind of sober reverence that comes upon us and we actually understand how holy and glorious is the God in whose presence we exist. Adoration. This painting here on the screens behind me, it is uh, called this, a name that many paintings like it share, the adoration of the Magi. These wise men have come all this way to adore Jesus, meaning to put Jesus at the center of all they do, to declare that he is up there and they are down here. We may primarily think of this passage in Matthew chapter 2 as about the Magi, but they would never want us to think that. And that is because they, their actions in these verses are all about one person, not three. Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who they adored. This wasn't some self-serving act which they hoped to glean some kind of favor in return. This was adoration of God. You might find two lovers who love to say this thing to one another. I adore you. And we don't want to witness that because that's you know, that's mushy and, you know, just do that behind closed doors. But what do they mean except that they love every aspect of the other person? And as a result, they want to give themselves fully to that person. That's adoration. And our adoration of the person of Jesus Christ, it, it should be, it has to be more passionate than that. We often express our adoration through praise and thanksgiving, through prayer, through singing, through silent contemplation. But in all of these things, what we're doing is we're adoring the holy and glorious God who is so far above us 
and yet has bended so low to give himself to us. That's incredible. And thus we adore him. A third and related aspect of worship which these magi illustrate for us is this. Worship is allegiance. Worship is allegiance. In verse 11, where the magi fall down and they worship Jesus, the Greek word there for worship is proskuneo, which means literally to bow down and to kiss, as in to kiss the feet or the ring. Proskuneo is what happens when someone wants to express submission and complete dependence upon someone who is a high authority figure in their life. To bow down and to worship in this way is to do none other than to declare allegiance, to say, I'm yours and no one else's. Neil Martin, who was a member of the British Parliament, was once giving a group of his constituents a guided tour of the Houses of Parliament. And during the tour, the group happened to run into Lord Hailsham, who was the Lord Chancellor at the time. And Lord Hailsham looked incredibly commanding because he was wearing all of the regalia of his office as he walked down the hall. You can imagine that. And as Lord Hailsham approached the tour group, he recognized Martin leading the group, and he cried out to greet him, Neil! And at that moment, the entire tour group fell down to their knees, not wanting to disobey the Lord Chancellor, who was, of course, saying the name Neil and not the command Neil. We can understand this, though, right? We can understand what it's like to be in the presence of someone who so clearly outranks us and who is dressed in all the trappings that show their authority over us, it's almost instinctual for us to reverence them. We should think of Matthew chapter 4, where Satan was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And this is exactly what he was trying to get Jesus to do. In verse 9, Satan says to Jesus, All of these kingdoms of the world that you see, I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Proskuneo. Jesus refused, as if they belonged to Satan in the first place. And this is what Jesus said. You shall worship proskuneo, the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. When the Magi came before Jesus 30 years earlier, this is what they did before him. They bowed down in worship, proskuneo. And Herod knew. He knew that this is exactly what these magi were going to do. He knew that they were going to Bethlehem in order to declare their allegiance to this new king. And that fact threatened his power. Because you see, you can only give allegiance to one king. You can't two-time your allegiance. And that's still true. And thus we proclaim our allegiance to Jesus alone. The third, I'm sorry, the fourth and final component of worship is this. Worship 
is sacrifice. Sacrifice. If God is really who he says he is, if he really is holy and glorious, if Jesus really is our Savior and the Savior of the whole human race, then he deserves everything we have, right? I know we acknowledge that in our minds and with our lips. We need that reality to sink into our hearts. Our worship of God is incomplete if it costs us nothing. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, King David came to worship the Lord and he had the opportunity to offer an animal sacrifice using an ox that belonged to someone else. Here's what David said. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. Why not? Why not? I mean, it sounds like a pretty sweet deal. Get credit for worship and not have to spend a dime? Here's what David knew. If it cost him nothing, it wasn't worship. Sure, it was something, but it wasn't worship. The three wise men knew this as well. Think of how much time. How much time did it take to travel hundreds, if not thousands, of miles? Not by car, mind you. Not by plane, mind you. Think of how much it cost them for provisions and lodging along the journey. Think of what dangers and trials they might have faced along the way. And if that weren't enough, consider how luxurious were the gifts they brought. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. You don't get that stuff at Walmart. All of this was sacrifice. Sometimes we have this idea that because God's grace is free, and it is, that God expects nothing in return. That's not the case. It's a misunderstanding. You see, God expects everything in return. He expects everything because he expects our worship. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does Paul mean? He means to offer your very life, your relationships, your time, your work, your money, your abilities, all of it, on the altar of worship to God. Why? Does God need it? Of course not. He's holy and glorious. He doesn't need us. So then why? So we might show him how valuable he is to us. In the next few weeks, we're going to continue to talk about worship, especially how we worship and why we worship. But for now, this is the essence of what worship is. Response to God's revelation, adoration, allegiance, and sacrifice. All that we do, all that we're doing this morning, falls within this 
essence. I wonder if you've ever considered worship in this way. We talk about worship pretty loosely, sometimes synonymous with singing. But it is, is it a response to God's revelation? Is it adoration? Is it a declaration of allegiance? And is it sacrificial? How does our worship, our worship corporately and your worship individually, how does it compare to these four things? Is the essence of our worship, is it, is it like those Gentiles, those three Gentiles? Or is it like something else? Are we showing up to church or are we worshiping? Are we singing or are we worshiping? Are we praying and, and listening to the word of God? Or are we worshiping? Are we just living our lives? Or are we worshiping? I think that each and every one of us, if we are honest with ourselves, has room to grow. Room to enter more deeply into the true spirit of worship. And all of our practice here and now comes to fulfillment and fruition because the one thing that will comprise our time in all of eternity is worship. How can we look for and listen for God's voice in the revelation of Jesus Christ and in Scripture and in the world more deeply? How can we gaze at the holiness and the glory of God and to adore Him more deeply? How can we commit our undying allegiance to his purposes in our lives and in the world more deeply? How can we bring him sacrificial gifts of praise and thanksgiving in ourselves more deeply? It is these four things that transform a room full of people who are just singing into a room full of people who are worshiping. We want people to walk through these doors and to say, if nothing else, those people worshiped. So it's in that spirit in which I want us to sing right now together. And I want to invite you as we sing to fix all our attention and all our affection upon the person of Jesus Christ. Sing with me. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, For 
will give.